0: Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 685th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, Where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who extracts great resources from his seeds. We're talking with Bevan Cohen about seed and nut oils. Bevan is an author, herbalist, seed saver, and owner of Small House Farm in Michigan. He offers workshops and lectures across the country on the benefits of living closer to the land through seeds, herbs, and locally grown food. Bevan is a freelance writer whose work has appeared in numerous publications including Mother Earth News, Hobby Farms Magazine, and the Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company catalog. How cool is that? That's pretty cool. He is the author of four books including Saving Our Seeds, The Artist and Herbalist, and his highly anticipated new book, The Complete Guide to Seed and Nut Oils. Welcome to the show today, Bevan.
1: Greg, thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh my gosh, I'm excited to learn something new today. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: I would love to. So here at Small House Farm, we're what I like to call an effort in sustainable living. We grow majority of our own food right here on site, as well as herbs and seed crops, as you mentioned in the introduction there. I'm on a dead-end dirt road across the street from 1,100 acres of forest. So we do a lot of foraging out there wow. for food, as well as our medicine. Yeah, it's, it's so peaceful. It's so nice. It's amazing to think of sometimes my day at work is just spending time out in the woods, harvesting the plants, the gifts of mother nature, if you will. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Did you say my day at work? I did. I know. And that's kind Whoa. of a stretch. It doesn't feel like work really, you know, but there's a trade-off. There's definitely some challenges to being out here and doing what we do. Some days are very easy. Some days are very difficult. And that's that's just the balance of the universe, I guess. So I'm out here with my wife, Heather, and my two children, my two sons, Elijah and Anakin, who are awesome little helpers. They help out with so much around here. So we grow veggies and and herbs and seeds, and we just stay as busy as we can out here in our little uh, piece of heaven, I suppose, right?
0: Nice. Well, and you said something that really particularly intrigued me, and that's part of the reason that I'm moving from Phoenix to Asheville, North Carolina, is I want a quieter, slower life. And... I have a goal to raise most of my food. How do you guys go about doing that?
1: A lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice too. You don't realize, I suppose, how much goes into growing all of the food that you consume in a day, a week, a month or a year until you really sit down and try and grow it yourself. And it is substantial. And you kind of have to make some sacrifices. I can't eat necessarily everything I might want to eat whenever I want to eat it. We have a much more seasonal diet. We Uh eat with what's available throughout the year. We do a lot of canning, preserving our food to to enjoy during the winter time. It's labor intensive, you know, running a canner in your kitchen in the the hottest hottest days of summer is not the most enjoyable thing. But when you get to enjoy that delicious food in the cold, cold days of winter, it's totally worth it, Greg.
0: Right? Well, let's talk about that because growing something like broccoli, you know, when you get the little package of broccoli at the grocery store, you don't really understand what it takes to make that happen until you actually plant a broccoli plant and realize that package of broccoli that you just bought at the grocery store is like two thirds of a plant.
1: Well, you're right. And, and that's the thing that just drives me wild. And I really try to focus on that in some of our garden education classes to get people to understand how much of the plant is actually useful compared to what they're selling to us at the grocery store. You know, you can buy just the crowns of a broccoli plant and sure, that's a delicious part, but the stems are edible, the leaves are edible. There is so much good, delicious food there that is in in the world of the grocery store, it's just going to waste. And folks that aren't growing the broccoli don't even realize all these delicious things that they're missing out on.
0: Right. So let's talk about your farm. If I'm driving to the end of the road, what am I going to see?
1: You know, it really, it doesn't look that much from the road. It's not that exciting, I suppose. It's a small little house, as you can imagine from the name Small House Farm. It's a small little white house. The pole barn is as big as, if not bigger than my home. And <laughs> we are tucked safely, nestled into the woods. Woods as far as the eye can see, hardwoods, oak and maple mostly, which gives us a lot to do in the spring. This time of year right now, I just came in from tapping maple trees. And that's, you know, something that keeps us busy in this seasonal lifestyle. But it's very simple. It's very modest. You're going to see a lot of plants growing all over the place. Up near the road, we grow a lot of sunchokes, Jerusalem artichokes, oh, which yes. is um, a, a native to, you know, a relative of the sunflower, and they're absolutely beautiful, but they get carried away. Once they get established, they kind of take over their spot. I think it's beautiful. People driving by might think it looks a little wild about here.
0: Well, and so I had an experience with sunchokes, Jerusalem artichokes a few years ago. I used to have a buddy of mine about 20 years ago come to the house, and I'd pay him $100 twice a year. Thank you, Jay to come in and just plant things in the yard because that's what he loved to do. He was a forager and just planted things. And a couple of years after he came, I saw these sunflowers growing in the back part of the yard and they were 12, 14 foot tall sunflowers. It's like, what on earth are those? Not realizing they, amazing? they are not realizing that those are sunchokes.
1: Yeah. And- shout out to Jay for sure. For getting that established. Cause once you get the sunchokes in your garden, it's something you're going to have for a lifetime. Yeah. Uh, they spread and they kind of, like I said, take over that spot, but they are absolutely delicious. They're nutritious and they put on such a show. They're just beautiful in the landscape. It's just such a great plant. So yeah, your friend now, Jay really hooked you up.
0: Right. And so sunchokes though, they're not like an artichoke. They're called Jerusalem artichokes, but you actually eat something different off of a Jerusalem artichoke. Tell us about that.
1: Well, and they're also not from Jerusalem either, quite a misnomer (laughs) of the name for sure. It's actually, it's like a tuberous rhizome that you're going to collect from them underground that you're going to eat. Some people compare it to a potato, I suppose, and you can certainly prepare it just like a potato. Mm. I like to steam them, mash them, add some garlic to them, cut them up, put them in stir fries and that sort of thing. Absolutely delicious. But yes, it's an underground tuber that you're going to dig up to eat, to enjoy. So it is definitely different than your typical artichoke that you'd be growing in your garden for sure.
0: Yeah. So let's jump over and talk about oil from nuts and seeds. And I guess it, the it stumps me a little bit every time I try and say it because a seed is a nut and a nut is a seed.
1: Well, that's true, you know. But we just wanted to kind of differentiate that in the title to help people see the the diversity of different things that we could be using as oil seed crops, extracting these oils from seeds and nuts. Although they are similar, you know, botanical definition, people tend to classify them differently. So we wanted to help people see just the bounty uh, of resources that were available Ah, to us.
0: Perfect. So what kinds of seeds and nuts do we harvest
1: oil from? Oh, so many, Greg. You know, in the book, we cover well more than 40 different plants. Many of them vary in depth. We get on uh, growing or foraging, how to process, store the oil, press the oil, the uses for the oil, nutritional profiles, so many things. So we're talking stuff like sunflowers, hemp seed, flax, safflower, hazelnuts, walnuts, pecans, hickory, okra seeds, all sorts of stuff. There is such a such a selection of different oil seed crops out there. There's really something for everybody, no matter where you're growing, no matter where you're gardening or foraging, there's an oil seed crop near you. Okra? Okra, yes, sir. You
0: mean something that we can actually do w- with okra that doesn't make our face go funny? <laughs> assuming, for sure. that, assuming that okra oil tastes good.
1: It does. It's actually delicious. It's quite a delicacy, you know, and harvesting okra seed is a very simple thing to do. Once your okra gets too large, you know, and it starts to get a little bit tough and woody like that, you just kind of got to let it go. Just like you'd be harvesting for a seed crop to grow next year's garden. When you just bust those seeds out of there, collect them up and run them through your oil press and you're going to get a delicate and delicious okra seed oil. Mm, You're going to be so happy that you did it. Oh,
0: nice. All right, cool. So what is the simplest seed? To harvest oil from?
1: I always recommend folks start with sunflower seeds. That's where we got started here at Small House was pressing sunflower seed oil. Sunflower seeds are easy to grow. It's exponential. You get a lot of seeds, a lot of return on your investment Mm -hmm, when you're growing mm -hmm. sunflower seeds. Very easy to press, very high yields. So sunflower is a great place to get started.
0: All right, great. So we plant sunflowers. We got the plants. We're getting sunflower seeds. Let's start with an unhulled sunflower seed. What's the process?
1: Dig it, man. You don't even have to haul these seeds. That's the beauty of sunflower seeds. Oh, you can leave them nice. right in their shell. Yep, they're soft enough. And I found in my experience, I actually tend to get higher yields from my sunflower seeds if I leave them in the shell. Right. Wow. So very little work on our part. We can run them through that press. Make sure they're nice and dry. Think about it just like if you're growing your sunflower seeds to store them for your garden next year. How you leave your seeds out to dry mm-hmm. is the same process. Leave your seeds out to dry to get that moisture out of those seeds and then you can just run them right through your press. We use an expeller press, right? So essentially, it's just pressure that crushes those seeds and squeezes that oil out.
0: And how many sunflower seeds do I need for a usable amount of oil?
1: Well, actually, not as many as you might think. It's it's interesting if, if you were to break down your daily culinary routine and think uh-huh. about how much oil you actually use in a day. It's really not that much, right? You're so right. let's say it's not... you know, breakfast, maybe a tablespoon in the pan, lunch, the same thing, maybe three or four tablespoons in a day. And you can get a few tablespoons of oil from one good size sunflower head, right? It doesn't take a lot. A couple pounds of sunflower seeds and you're gonna be set up with oil for quite some time. Wow. Right, that the was... beauty of it is when yeah. you're pressing your own oil is we don't want to extract a whole bunch of oil and then just store it until we use it right? Then we might as well be buying it from the grocery store at that point. The beauty of making your own is you can wait and press the freshest oil every time you need it. Press a little bit. You've got it. The freshest, most delicious, nutritious oil you're ever going to use in the kitchen.
0: So there's obviously then a, a small machine that I can put on my kitchen counter that will do this for me.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, we got started with a press called the Pitaba, the Pitaba oil press. They make them in Holland. It's a small tabletop, hand cranked machine. You can just mount it onto your counter and you can press it right there in the kitchen. Just a little hand crank, turn crank to get it going. And and that's pretty much all that you need. We have upgraded over the years of pressing oil. We've been pressing oil here at Small House for going on about a decade now. Wow. Um, Yeah. So we've upgraded our machinery quite a bit. But one of the best upgrades that I think we made was hooking our pitaba oil press up to a bicycle, making it pedal You right? <laughs> Get a little bit of exercise, press some oil. I'll put the kids on there. You know, they're full of energy. They'll run that bike, press some oil. No big deal. So we actually, in the book, the complete guide to seed and nut oils, we walk you right through how to make your own pedal powered oil press. So everybody could have that kind of fun too. Oh, nice. And how long does this process of extracting oil take? Well, it's going to take as long as you want it to, I guess. It depends on how much you're looking to press. Now, we offer oils uh, commercially. We cold press oils that we offer. We use them Uh, as ingredients and our herbal products. So we press quite a bit of oil here. So when I'm I'm running the machine, I'm working for a couple of hours, right? I'm really going to work that machine. I'm going to extract quite a bit of oil. You know, I'll pull a gallon of oil in a day, something like that. But for home use, that's not necessary, right? You can just get on the press, run 20, 30 minutes. You're going to have plenty of oil to go. And what do we do with the mash that comes out? Because there's stuff left over, right? It is, you know, so that's what we call the seed cake. As the oil gets extracted and that comes out of the machine, out of the other end is is the mash, the the crushed leftover debris, if you will, right? All the bits and pieces of the seeds. And that's totally useful as well. We can use it in, in the kitchen, right? We can mill it. I'll take like, say, hemp seeds. We'll crush our hemp seeds. I'll take that leftover seed cake run it through my food processor, turn it into a powder, and I'll oh. use it to make toast. I'll put it in my breads. I'll put it in my oatmeal. It's absolutely delicious. I feed it to my chickens, right? If we go back to talking about sunflower oil, the seed cake from our sunflower seeds, give that to your chickens. You have some livestock, something like that. It's so good for them. They love it. You want to see some chickens get excited, throw them some crushed sunflower seeds. Boy, they get worked right up. Wow, I'll bet. And
0: so for those of us that aren't actually growing these seeds and nuts, what should we be looking for when we're shopping for materials, seeds and nuts to use? What I mean, how do I make sure I'm picking the right ones?
1: Well, you know, I always want to get the freshest seeds around. That's important to me if I have to purchase them. You can certainly buy seeds in bulk through online mm-hmm. sources. There's a lot of places on the internet where you can buy seeds and nuts in bulk, most certainly. But I'm going to tell you, if you can, try to hook up with a local farmer. Try to keep your ingredients as local as possible, right? So get go, get down to the farmer's market, meet some of the farmers, hang out with some folks. Inevitably, you'll find some people that are either growing a big patch of sunflower seeds, maybe they're already out there harvesting some of these, these uh, nuts off the trees, whatever it might be, connecting with your local growers. That's the most important thing we can do.
0: Awesome. And tell me about your first experience at the farmer's market.
1: So my first experience at the farmer's market is it's actually kind of a funny story. We had gotten this hand cranked of oil press um, Mm -hmm. and some sunflower seeds. And I was up all night running this crank, pressing this oil. I was so excited. Crank, crank, crank all night long. And I ended up with maybe six nice bottles of sunflower oil. Once it all settled and everything, some really quality stuff. I had a friend of mine who's an artist. She developed a label for us. She drew us a nice sunflower and everything. Nice. It's it's still the same label that we use to this day. Really beautiful. Yep. We went down to the farmer's market. I set up my little table. I was so, so excited about this. I sold out in 20 minutes, right? Wow. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of product by any means, but to to see that sort of a response from folks, people were really intrigued by what we were doing. Oh my gosh. Right. It It was awesome, man. You know, like people go to the farmer's market. They want to get that fresh stuff. They want to get that local stuff. They're looking for that sort of thing. But there wasn't anybody offering locally pressed fresh oil like that. They'd never seen it before. So they're very excited. They bought us out. In turn, then I got even more excited. We started upping our production. And uh, well, I guess, as they say, the rest is history. It's pretty much taken over. The cold press oil is the foundation of everything that we do at Small
0: House Farm. Wow. How cool is that? And, you know, I always like to touch on the ease at which it is to get into a local farmer's market, because there's this about 25 years ago, I actually went to a market regularly with stuff here. And what I discovered early on was that just call the people at the market and say, you need a vendor for what I've got. And as long as they don't already have six or eight other people doing it, they're probably going to let you in. So how easy it is, is it to get into markets?
1: Oh, it's so easy. Just like you're saying, you know, these farmers markets, obviously they want to have more vendors they have, the more customers are going to show up, that sort of thing. And they want to support these local growers. That's part of their mission. That's what they're trying to do. It's so easy to get into a farmer's market, connect with them, like you said, let them know what kind of products you have to offer, and they're going to accommodate you, make space for you. They love to support new up and coming producers. So don't be afraid to reach out and connect with the farmer's market. The community at a farmer's market is incredible. The shoppers, the other farmers, it's just so awesome to get to meet those folks, share ideas, learn from each other. It's just such a wonderful
0: thing. Yeah. And especially if you have a unique product like cold pressed oil, right?
1: Oh yeah. You know, everybody thought that was neat. And I wasn't competing with any of the other farmers there. I was bringing in something different. So they were all very excited to see for sure.
0: Yeah. And that's what's called. These are called value added products where you take something like a nut and you, Crush it and make oil out of it. I know that with my apple press, I have an apple press and an apple crusher. The way the process works for that is that they the apples first go into a crusher, which masticates them, it chews them up, and then they go into the apple press. Are we doing the same thing with with? Nuts.
1: Many times we are. It's a similar process and we get through it in the book. We talk about each individual seed at the process that it needs to get maximum extraction. And and Mm. many of them, we do want to break them down a little bit, make them smaller. That allows us to feed them into the press a lot easier. It gives us more surface area to press. We're going to get a higher yield, a better extraction that way. But some seeds, much smaller ones off the top of my head, I'm going to say things like hemp seed, flax seed, poppy seeds, those sort of things. They're so small, they can go right into the press as is, Mm. without any uh, pre-processing, and you'll be able to get a great extraction out of them anyways. Nice. And what
0: prompted you to write this current book?
1: Well, you know, mostly because I wish that somebody else had already written it. Um, (laughs) Nice. You know, when I got started doing this, I couldn't find any resources, information was was few and far between. I could find a few articles here and there on the internet, maybe a YouTube video of somebody doing it, but it was very few and far between. And so because of that, I kind of had to learn as I go, a lot of struggle, a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I thought, boy, more people should be doing this and we got to make it easier for them to get started. So that was kind of the impetus for writing the book is I want people to pick this book up, see how easy this could be. And get out there and try pressing some oil of their own.
0: And that's coming out second quarter of this year.
1: It's actually the release date. It's going to be April 5th. So this book is now available wherever books are sold. Nice. Nice.
0: So that is called the complete guide to seed and nut oils. Awesome. And I have a note here and Janice knows I love Epic. Tell us about the first time you saved seeds and shared them with somebody.
1: Okay, that's a fun story, Greg. So I'm an avid seed saver. We save seeds from, well, all of our crops, of course, our vegetables, as well as our herbs and flowers and that sort of thing. And I've written a number of books on that subject as well. But I got started saving seeds many, many years ago. I was a gardener, but not a seed saver. I didn't Mm -hmm. really understand the process of how that worked. And I used to visit a place near me called the Chippewa Nature Center, a beautiful nature preserve. It's, you know, they have forests and fields and swamps, gorgeous stuff. And they have this old homestead farm where you could go there and learn about life. How for people lived here in the 1800s, they have an old schoolhouse and a sugar shack and all these things. My kids loved going to this thing. We'd always go churn butter, whatever's going on. They'll churn a lot of butter at the nature center. They rarely will churn butter for us at home, right? <laughs> That's how kids are. But anyway, so we're at the garden that they have there, which is supposedly historically accurate to how crops would have grown. And I didn't understand what that meant. You know, they have these signs, these little woodburn signs at the end of each row. and say something like, you know, bountiful bush bean, 1893, whatever it might be. And I thought, oh, there's no way these seeds are that old. I know enough about seeds that I know that seeds that old aren't viable. And the gardener says to me, he says, no, no, these are heirloom seeds that have been saved and passed down from one generation to the next. And we've been able to trace them back to the 1800s. And I was a little slow on the pickup learning what that was all about. So, you know, some people learn best by doing, and he pulled some bean pods out of the plants and put them in my hand. He said, you take these seeds home, save these seeds, grow them and share them with your friends. So I did just that. It was a Cherokee Trail black beans. And I took them home. And the next year I grew them in my garden, grew them right outside my bedroom window, you know, so I could keep an eye out and make sure nothing happened to them. And right? They were so, to this day, Greg, the most prolific beans I've ever grown. They were incredible. So many not that beans. amazing? It was awesome. And I didn't eat any of them. I saved every bean, just like you said, it's every seed. So then we decided to put together a little seed swap. I'd never been to a seed swap before. So we organized one for our community and I brought these seeds and I shared them. Everybody that wanted them could have some under the same conditions. You have to grow these beans, save your seeds and share them and with share your them. friends. I dig it, man. Listen to that. So let's say out of all those people, 12 of them actually saved their seeds and shared them with their friends. And each of those 12 people shared the seeds with 12 more people. Mm-hmm. That's 144 people. Yeah, And then those 144 people share their seeds with 12 more people. How many people is that? 1,200 and
0: some. Yeah.
1: It's an incredible amount. Just like a handful of beans became hundreds of beans, a handful of seed savers became hundreds of seed savers in just a couple of seasons time. And I realized in that moment that every time we save and share our seeds, it's that significant and it's changed my entire life.
0: Yeah. That's my epic story
1: about seed saving, man.
0: Nice. So I'm going to shift on you. And I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it.
1: So as a gardener, I fail at something every season, right? Every season. That's how you learn, right? I fail either planting my plants too close together, too much space, forgetting about weeding, watering, whatever it might be. The list of failures never ends. And I overcome that by continuing to try. Every season is a new opportunity to learn from my mistakes and to try again. So I I feel that through failure is how we overcome, right? So I used to be a little upset. Oh, I'd make a mistake, something, I'd lose some plants. You know, I'd almost take it personally. But I've come to realize over the years that these are just opportunities to learn more stuff, to learn how to do a better job caring for the plants in my environment, right? So a failure isn't even that bad. It's actually just an opportunity.
0: Amen to that. And that's the reason I asked this question is just, I want people to really get that it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to fail at something.
1: this is where we learn. It's bound to happen. If you're not failing, then you're not trying, right?
0: And you're not learning. That's right. Yeah. What do you consider your biggest success?
1: My biggest success would be my children. I think, you know, the lifestyle that we live now here at small house farm, I did not have that girl. I lived in a small apartment with my grandmother. We didn't have this kind of space to grow. We didn't have these sorts of things. So to be able to pass these things that I've learned on to my children that let them grow up in this environment where they're actively involved in their food, you know, they plant the seeds that becomes their dinner, you know, they name the pigs that becomes their bacon, to have that opportunity to be a part of the food system, I think is very, very important. You know, every season, I'm going to get a little bit older, and my time here on earth is growing short. So the greatest thing that I can do is to pass this all on to my children. And if what they've accomplished so far in life is any indication, when these guys grow up, oh, they're going to do some big things. They're going to do some (laughs) wonderful things out there for
0: sure. Oh, my God. Isn't that a great feeling? That's leaving a legacy behind that fills up our hearts.
1: Absolutely. You know how they say, planting a tree, I'll, I'll never sit underneath their shade. Right. That expression. It's just like that for me with my kids. I'm, in, yeah. I'm planting seeds in them, if you will, that I may never have an opportunity to see the fruit, but I know that it's going to be great. Yeah. And what drives you? I love to see people get excited about gardening. You know? <laughs> that's, I, I just,
0: that's apparent. I'm just in our conversation today, man. We are all I, over I that. I get
1: stoked. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's just so exciting to see. People getting out there and maybe growing something for the first time or seeing how their favorite produce is actually grown, something they've maybe eaten their whole life, but they didn't really know how it grew. And they finally get to see the aha moment that they have when they get to be a part of that, when they learn the life cycle of a plant from seed to seed, just unlocking these things and showing people the wonders of the world. It's definitely my greatest driver. It is so cool to see in these times that we are now, these very challenging times, the silver lining, if you will, is all these people turning back to the gardens and slowing down with their lives and becoming growers, becoming part of a system of success, right? Making the world a better place and, and to be an educator and to be a small part of that puzzle. is just such a great thing. So that's definitely my driver, just getting more people out there, getting their hands in the soil. It's just pretty cool. <laughs> I love what you said, a
0: system of success.
1: Well, that's what it is, right? Mm-hmm. It absolutely, you know, we all work together in a way to make the world a better place. And we do that one seed at a time. And if we can help people plant those seeds, we're doing some important work. Man, you you just said some brilliant things today. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks, Craig.
0: Yeah. And so you shared this before we started recording, but the hardest question for you, one book for our listeners and what would it be and why?
1: The most difficult question I've possibly ever been asked. I read a lot of books. I spent a lot of time reading, you know, in my spare time, I guess I spent a lot of time reading and I thought, well, do I want a book that I've recently read that that has really struck me or something that I read long ago that I still carry with me? What could it be? Who's my favorite child today? I guess is is the answer. And I came up with this, this book right here, The Lost Feast, Culinary Extinction and the Future of Food by Lenore Newman. This book has changed my insights on things so much. It's incredible, but Lenore did such a wonderful job exploring how our love of food has caused so many culinary extinctions, right? Because we love things sometimes, maybe a little irresponsibly. We take things for granted, and we don't see that sometimes Mm -hmm. these are finite resources. So it's important to love things responsibly. That's the takeaway I got from this book. So all of your listeners should check out The Lost Feast by Lenore Newman.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And Really, the reason I asked this question is because I'm always looking for books to read. So again, I knew there was an
1: ulterior motive. There you go.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: Just keep growing. Get out there and grow. You know, like we talked about, sometimes things are going to go well and sometimes they aren't. We're going to have great successes. We're going to have great challenges and we're going to have failures. And through it all, we're learning new stuff. So just get out there Get your hands in the soil and keep planting those seeds.
0: Nice. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Bevan. It has been a delight chatting with you.
1: Greg, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And how can our listeners find you? The easiest way to stay connected with us is through our website. It'll connect you to our social media, our Instagram, our YouTube channel, all that stuff. And that's just simply smallhousefarm.com.
0: Nice. And the name of your book and where can we find it?
1: The Complete Guide to Seed and Nut Oils.